Welcome to Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists with Matt Gass and Nina Goad. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the world of our skin with a range of dermatological experts, tackling topics from the clinical to the cosmetic. So today we're talking all about sweating, which is apt as it's probably the hottest day of the year so far, and I am certainly doing lots of it. Yeah, I hear you, Matt. It's absolutely boiling today. And actually just sitting here feeling this hot, it's given me a whole new level of empathy for people who this is a daily reality, you know, having to sweat even when it isn't extremes of temperature. Definitely, definitely. Well, to tee up this episode, I thought it would be good to share an extract from a fantastic article which I read recently on the Metro website. This article is by Daniel Reist. And it's on his experience with living with hyperhidrosis. If the weather presenter has a smile on their face, mine quickly drops. It means sunny, warm days, and probably even more sweating from me than usual. Hyperhidrosis, or excessive and abnormal perspiration, isn't as simple as it sounds. While I sweated heavily as a child, I attributed it to being unfit but it was at university when I first realised my body didn't act like other people's. Walking to the library with friends, I felt like an anchor weighing them down with my purposefully shambling pace to avoid the worst of the sweating. The signs of this curse are obvious. Beads of sweat on the brow coupled with an inkblot pattern of moisture tattooed on the back of my t-shirt. If it's really hot, drops slowly slide down my leg. This, brought on by walking alone, and it being too uncomfortable, spurred my decision to find answers. My GP soon confirmed my diagnosis, and it was a relief to have a name for what was happening to me after so much self-doubt. My condition makes me produce much more sweat than a normal person. Even in winter, it doesn't disappear. When others are shivering, I'm trapped in my coat of perspiration, unable to switch off the heat. It starts at the slightest increase in temperature. Putting on layers, sitting near radiators, and even walking to different rooms can activate it, The floodgates open and my clothes are ruined. It's not just a case of doubling up on deodorant and drowning in talcum powder. My sweating adds a layer of social anxiety that saps my confidence whenever I go out. It sounds melodramatic, but when you're just walking down the high street, out of breath and sun blaring on your neck, this experience can feel crippling. So that extract was taken from Daniel Reese's article and his experiences with living with hyperhidrosis. I think it really conveys the the stress and the frustration of living with hyperhidrosis. I mean, clearly Daniel's gone through a really, really tricky time with it and it comes through in every word, I think. But it's also really good to talk about it and to highlight and to, you know, in a way, call out some of the people who can be quite harsh and quite thoughtless towards people with hyperhidrosis, I think. Yeah, I'm so grateful to people like Daniel who speak out about something that can you know sometimes it's considered a bit taboo and what I think is really interesting is that a lot of people probably don't even know about hyperhidrosis they might know about a lot of skin diseases but they have no idea that there's a disease that causes people to sweat excessively even when it's not necessarily hot Um, and you know you could argue that people shouldn't be judging anyone anyway regardless of whether it's linked to a disease or whether it's just because they're you know, hot and sweaty. It's a natural function. It's not harming anyone. It's not contagious. But I think making people aware that there is actually a condition associated with sweat is really, really good. And, you know, just massive credit to Daniel for speaking out about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, like you say, it shouldn't 
matter that it's you know a clinical condition rather than just natural body processes but for some people that is the sort of thing that kicks their empathy into gear as it were so I think you're right to mention that I just wanted to acknowledge something before we get started our guest today very kindly fitted us in at short notice um, so we were slightly at the mercy of the clinic room that he was in when it came to the recording so you may notice some some sound issues but hopefully nothing too bad such is life at the moment where we can't actually all be in the same room and you know use the equipment that we'd like to but hopefully you all understand so with that disclaimer out the way it's time for the introductions so our guest today is dr adil shiraz consultant dermatologist and he's on to talk to us all about sweat hi adil thanks so much for coming on you're very welcome hi adil nice to have you on thanks for joining us oh you're welcome thank you for having me Perfect. Well, I thought perhaps we could just start off with a really basic question and start discussing why we sweat in the first place. What purpose does it serve? Yep. So the main purpose essentially of sweating is thermoregulation, which essentially means control of our body temperature. So our body temperature is within a very narrow range, 36.2 to about 37.2 or so. And we need to maintain our temperature within that one degree range. And that requires a lot of different systems to function to do that. And the main one is sweating. So when we feel hot after exercise or if it's hot day, for example, then signals from our brain will be sent to our sweat glands and we will produce sweat, which is essentially water and a bit of salt mixed with it. And as that water evaporates, it takes heat with it, known as latent heat, and it cools our body down. And that's how we essentially cool our system down it's a similar sort of principle to if you think about you being in a shower and when you come out of the shower you feel a little bit cold and as you dry yourself off your body temperature you don't feel as cold so it's the same sort of principle we take away heat from the uh, sweat that is released yeah really interesting i mean i always find people that air dry a little bit strange but um each to their own <laughs> you know as we talk about sweat obviously the big thing that people associate with sweat is is body odor and the smell what is that why does sweat smell and obviously some people get affected by it more particularly as we get older could you just sort of delve into that a little bit yeah of course so i think you've got to remember we've got essentially two types of glands we've got what's called the eccrine gland and we have an apocrine gland your eccrine glands are scattered all throughout your body everywhere pretty much we've got about on average anywhere between three or four million glands sweat glands in our body um, and these eccrine glands, which are the ones that predominate in the body, produce water and salt. And sweat produced from these glands doesn't smell at all. You've also got apocrine glands, and these are the glands that are present in your armpits, under your breasts, in your scalp, in your groin region. Now, these produce sweat as well, but it's slightly different. So it contains more fatty acids and lipids and carbohydrates. So the structure of the sweat is slightly different. And this sweat, again, doesn't smell. But the bacteria that lives on our skin feeds off all this fatty acids and the lipids and the breakdown product, and that's what essentially causes the smell, which we label as body odour. I mean, I think it's so important to sort of get to the bottom of that in a way, because I think one thing that we'll talk a bit about today is the stigma that comes with sweating, and smell is such a important aspect of that. Even if you don't actually smell, it's the expectation and it's the judgment that you get from people. So thanks for explaining that. It's really interesting that some of your sweat doesn't smell at all. And when we get older, is it that we get more of these bacteria? Is that why as we get older, we're more likely to have issues with body odor and so on, have to 
wash and use deodorant more or is that unrelated to that? When we're born, we're born with about three to four million sweat glands. And those don't change throughout your life. You have the same amount of sweat glands. The sun may become less functional as you get older. So we're born with the two types of glands, eccrine and apocrine. And it's the apocrine gland that produces the smell. Apocrine glands don't function in children because they only start to function with puberty because their main sort of function is related to hormones. And hormones is what triggers them. So children, of course, until they hit puberty, they don't produce certain hormones and therefore they don't smell essentially off body odour. Oh, that makes sense. And I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier about it being the reaction with the bacteria on the skin. I'm always a bit nervous when we talk about bacteria because it's a bit like with acne where people have wrongly associated acne having a link to bacteria on your skin with with therefore thinking, well, it's bacteria like germs. It's because you don't wash properly. Would you say with sweat that this is just naturally occurring bacteria? It's not because people aren't washing. It's just, you know, the bacteria are going to be there at some point during your day, regardless of whether you had a shower in the morning. Absolutely right. So yeah, these are commensal bacteria, which means that they live on our skin. So they will always be there. Washing, of course, will reduce the number. So when people who have hyperhidrosis, which we'll go on to a bit later, which is excessive sweating, we do advise them to wash regularly because it will reduce the bacteria and therefore it will reduce the smell associated with hyperhidrosis. But in normal situations, that bacteria is there. So you can reduce it by washing, but it by no means means you're unclean or unhygienic. Right. Okay. That's good to know. And then we've just mentioned washing as a factor. Are there any other factors that contribute to how much someone sweats? Yeah, there's a few different things. So one factor would be age. So we do know that as you get older, you sweat less. That might maybe partly due to shrinkage of your sweat glands. There's also body size. So for example, we sometimes see children actually, my son in particular, if he's sleeping in one position, seems to sweat quite a lot in one area. And I think that's quite true for a lot of kids. And the reason is because if you remember, I said you have the same number of sweat glands throughout life. So you've got a much smaller body surface area in a child and therefore you've got a higher density for all these sweat glands close together. So you sweat more often as children. And as you get older, your body surface increases with the same number of sweat glands, you don't sweat as much. But if you are a larger person, if you're obese or overweight, for example, then you're producing more body heat. And if you're producing more body heat, you will sweat more to reduce that heat. So obviously, we all sweat at some point. How do you know when that's a problem? How do you know when you're sweating excessively, and there might be like a medical reason for it, as opposed to just normal sweating, which we all encounter? Sure. So I guess we need to look at the two types of sweating. There's excessive sweating, and you can put that into a primary cause or a secondary cause. Now, most people who sweat excessively will fall into the primary cause of sweating, which essentially means we don't really know what the cause is. There may be a genetic link with that. In the UK, the prevalence of hyperhidrosis or excessive sweating is thought to be 1%, but actually it's probably at least double that. And the reason is because people don't realize they're excessively sweating because they've just been that way their whole life and they've learned to live with it. Um, and they just feel it's normal for them. So the incidence is probably a lot higher. But there are, there are some points that, as dermatologists, we use to determine whether you suffer with excessive sweating. And that is, for example, if you've been sweating for more than six months with no obvious cause, and if your sweating affects you symmetrically in your areas, if it has an effect on your daily activities, 
if you're younger than 25 years of age. And often one important thing is that when you have excessive sweating of the primary cause, then it tends to switch off at night. So you don't sweat at night compared to if you had a secondary cause of hyperhidrosis, which I'll just talk about as well, that tends to continue throughout night. So that's an important factor. And there's often family history as well with primary hyperhidrosis. So if we look at the two different types, you've got primary where we don't really know the cause, there may be a genetic link. And then there's a secondary cause of hyperhidrosis or excessive sweating, whereby there's an underlying problem that is causing that sweating. So for example, we'll all know that if you have a cold, a flu, a virus, then we have a fever and we sweat. So that's secondary sweating because of the underlying problem. But there are other conditions like thyroid problems or diabetes or certain tumors that may make you sweat excessively. So if there is a secondary cause of your hyperhidrosis, then that needs to be investigated. But by and large, people who excessively sweat, and about 90% will fall into the primary cause, i.e. it's nothing really worrying, but we don't really know what the cause is. Okay, that's really good to know. So say you've got to the point where you know now that you've got hyperhidrosis and you're looking to get treatment can you get that on the nhs or would you need to be seen privately because i know that it can sometimes be a bit of an issue with dermatology some conditions are very much treated on the nhs but there are some and some quite common ones which are seen as more cosmetic and aren't covered yeah absolutely so i think hyperhidrosis is a significantly debilitating condition and there are lots of stigmas associated with it i mean if you see someone for example who's very sweaty um, or has sweat patches naturally you seem to assume that they're also unclean and there's all this stigma associated with there's a psychological burden with patients so it is a, a very difficult condition to live with and when you look at dlqi numbers so dlqi is a dermatology life quality index which as dermatologists we use a lot of this in psoriasis in eczema to judge how much of their skin condition is affecting their life. When you compare it to other conditions such as psoriasis or eczema, you find that the DOQI levels of people with excessive sweating is about the same. So it has a significant impact on patients' lives. Now, when something has such a significant impact on patients' lives, then it sort of becomes a duty for us to treat that. And with regards to treating on the NHS, yes, it can be treated on the NHS, but there are a variety of different treatments and only some of those treatments are available on the NHS and others, unfortunately, patients may have to seek privately because some trusts may offer it, some trusts may not offer it. So there are lots of things we can do for primary hyperhidrosis on the NHS as well as in the private sector. Okay, so it is a little bit of a mixed bag and it slightly depends potentially on where in the country you are because, as you say, certain trusts may offer treatments that other trusts don't. Yes. If you can't get treatment on the NHS or if it's not appropriate to do so, is there anything you can do yourself? Are there any like lifestyle tips to manage it? Yeah, so there, I mean, there are quite a few different things that patients can do and try. However, people who've been suffering with hyperhidrosis often have tried all these different methods and they don't have a huge success rate, but it's definitely worth trying. So simple tips, for example, would be use an antiperspirant that contains aluminium, which will essentially block the sweat ducts. Use 
loose clothing, for example, which are made from natural fibers such as cotton um, or wool, and avoid synthetic fibers, which are less sort of breathable. A lot of people who have excessive sweating tend to wear black or white clothes because they don't stain as much. Think about your shoes and socks. You may want to be wearing sort of more breathable socks and changing them on a regular basis. Wear leather shoes because they're a bit more breathable. Certain things in your diet, for example, caffeine or spicy foods may trigger sweating. So you might want to cut those out. But as I said, I think people who have had hypidrosis know their triggers and they do all of these various avoidance tactics and they tend not to work. And then we often end up having to put them on some form of more potent treatment. Can it affect all ages? Can children get hyperhidrosis? Because the reason I ask is that my friend's daughter, who I guess she's, I think she's about 10 or 11, she has really, really sweaty hands all the time, even if she's cold, but just the palms of her hands, no other part on her body. And it's to the point where even using things like fingerprint recognition on a phone or touchscreen stuff becomes problematic. And sometimes she drops things because her palms are sweaty. What would cause that? Could that just be linked to something else? Or is that hypohidrosis just in itself without a cause? So primary hypohidrosis usually starts before the age of 25. It's what we'd find. And in fact, in most cases, it does start in childhood. So that almost definitely does sound like primary hyperhidrosis, particularly if it's symmetrical and just on the palms. And I mean, I remember having a 13 or 14 year old girl in my clinic once who had exams coming up and she couldn't hold a pen because of the sweat. It would constantly slip and fall out of her hand. And she was really worried and anxious and stressed that she wouldn't be able to give her exams. And it, so it's a really difficult condition, debilitating condition. People who write, for example, if they've got sweaty palms, they leave marks on their paper, with, or wet marks. If you're reading a newspaper or a book or a magazine, you leave marks on the books. And it, it can be really embarrassing for people. So I think, um, yes, it can affect children. In fact, it, that's when it tends to start. And it's usually primary hyperhidrosis. If you're, of course, worried that there may be an underlying condition, then we, we can look for that. But it's probably unlikely. Can children grow out of it or do you have it for life once you've got primary hyperhidrosis? Unfortunately you don't really grow out of it. People will often find coping mechanisms and techniques and how, how to sort of deal with it but you tend not to grow out of it. As you get older as I mentioned some of your sweat glands do shrink so it might become less problematic but that's when you're significantly older. So unfortunately people who have hyperhidrosis tend to have to live with it uh, and, and, and deal with it and manage it. So I know you talked about some of the treatments earlier. It'd be really good to explain what some of the, the common treatments are for hyperhidrosis so people can understand you know, what to expect if they do eventually get to see a dermatologist. So there are a lot of different treatment options available. And if you see a dermatologist, then we will have a variety of things that we could potentially do for you. Now, most people, when they have seen us, they've already tried the over-the-counter antiperspirants. And most of these antiperspirants will contain some sort of aluminium product. Um, When you see a dermatologist, we may prescribe you a significantly stronger version of the aluminium antiperspirant and you can use them on your hand you can use them in the armpit you can use them on your feet as well so you can use them in various different areas and we tend to prescribe 20 percent or even higher of the aluminium based um, um, products and they work really well in some people they block your ducts the problem often is people don't use these correctly so 
the best way to use an antiperspirant, now first of all, the different there's antiperspirant and there's deodorant, of course, and the difference is that an antiperspirant will block the sweat duct, the deodorant will just mask the smell. So you want to use an antiperspirant rather than a deodorant, first of all, and it needs to be applied at night. So you need to make sure your armpits, for example, are thoroughly dry, and you can use something like a hairdryer on, a, on, on the cold setting just to dry these areas and then apply the antiperspirant at night and then you want to wash it off in the morning. And by washing, you will not wash off the uh, antiperspirant because it will plug the ducts internally. That's what it does. So you can apply deodorant after that if you want. That's absolutely fine. And you need to do this daily for the first week or so in the armpit and then gradually you need to cut it down to whatever you require once a week or twice a week and if used correctly it does work really well the only problem with we find with these antiperspirants is they can be irritant on the skin so some people develop a bit of redness a bit of irritation and that sometimes is because if you've applied it to wet skin the aluminium chloride can react with the water and it can cause a little bit of irritation with a bit of a mild sort of acid formation on the skin. So make sure your armpits are dry, and if there is irritation, then you can use a little bit of, of a mild steroid to dampen that down. So that will be the first step. There are newer aluminium products, which are the aluminium zirconium products, and they're less irritant on the skin. And again, you could potentially find these over the counter or they can be prescribed. So that will be your first step of treatment. Now, the second stage, once you've tried all the sprays, etc., is to consider some form of a tablet. And these tablets are called anticholinergics. And anticholinergic tablets essentially work by blocking the pathways whereby the sweat glands are activated. Now, anticholinergics have been around for many years, and in fact, they've been used for patients with urinary incontinence, so those people who can't control their urine. So they've been around for that for many years, and one of the side effects is they dry you out. And so we use them for sweating as well. And they work well, however, they have some side effects. So for example, they will cause dry mouth, they'll cause dry eyes, they may cause blurred vision, and it may be slightly difficult for you to pass urine. All in all, they're really safe treatment, and I find they work reasonably well, and you need to sort of titrate the doses often just to minimize the side effects. So, the, And there's three or four different tablets that can be used. There are some that are stronger than others. So when you see your dermatologist, they'll be able to put you in one of these and maybe cycle through a couple. And this works for you know any part of your body. So if you're sweating hands, feet, axilla, or just your body or your face, then it will work for all of these parts. Whereas, of course, if you're using a deodorant, then you tend not to spray your face with it. You tend to use it in armpits or maybe your groin or your hands and feet. So that'll be your second step. Again, both of these treatments are available on the NHS. Now, the third treatment, which is Botox, botulinum toxin A, is an excellent treatment. It works really well for any area, essentially. You can use it in the armpits, you can use it on the palms, you can use it on the feet, you can even use it on the face for craniofacial sweating. The disadvantage is that it's not offered everywhere. So some NHS trusts will offer it, some will not. But remember, it's only really approved for your armpits. It's not approved for other areas, although we use it for other areas. In the armpits, it works really well. You have probably 20 odd injections per armpit 
So it can be a little bit painful, and it's not usually done under local anesthetic. So it's just done directly, you inject it into the skin, and it has amazing results. Within a few days, you'll see results. It will reduce your sweating up to about 80% and even more, and it will last for between four and six months. It will need to be repeated. And you can do the same thing on your palms. You can do the same thing on your feet. But as you can imagine, the palms and feet will hurt a lot more. So there are techniques that we use to minimize the pain. So we'll, for example, place ice cubes or ice packs, which diminish the pain or numb the skin temporarily and then inject. Um, And if we do it that way, then it is a lot more tolerated. But yes, it's painful. Again, works really well but it is slightly painful for the hands and feet. And you can even do that on the face. And you find patients who have Botox as anti-wrinkle injections on their face will also find that they sweat less on the face because of the same effect that a botulinum toxin has. And and the way it works is by essentially preventing acetylcholine, which is the main neurotransmitter that causes sweating. So that will be one of your options as well. There is another option called iontophoresis, and iontophoresis is uh, its a really old method, actually. It's been around since the early 1900s, and originally it was used to push various drugs into the skin. So we have pores on our palms, they're called acrosyringia, and these pores are really good at taking up various medications. So the thought process back in the 1900s was you put your hands in a solution of tap water, you pass a little electrical current through that water, and then you put medication in that water as well, and then it's taken up, the electric current essentially forces it into the skin. And what they found was when they were doing this is that people also tended to sweat less. So now, uh, since the early 1950s or so, it's been used um, as a treatment for hyperhidrosis, but it's only really useful for hands and feet because you can't really dip your face in it or your armpits, it doesn't really work well. So your hands and feet, it works well. You need to do it for about half an hour, three times or so a week, and it's essentially a lifelong treatment. You've got to keep on top of it on a regular basis. But the advantage is you can buy a machine at home and you can do it at home. So it's easy, it's comfortable. The electric current doesn't hurt. It's more like a pins and needles sort of sensation, um, and it's tolerated quite well. I've had children who've had it done and they've not had any issues with it at all. So that's a good method. And there are some NHS trusts that will give you a trial to see if it works for you. And then if it works, you buy the machine. They're not very expensive. I think there's a range. They range from probably between 200 to maybe 500 pounds, depending on the type of machine you get. But if it controls your sweating, then I think it's definitely a worthwhile investment. So that's another method. And then there are other treatment options, which include surgical methods. So people who have sweating will have almost definitely come across a method known as ETS, which is essentially a sympathectomy whereby certain nerves that run run alongside your spine are cut or clipped. Now, this is a sort of last ditch method because it's a surgical procedure. It's done under general anesthetic. There are other risks associated with it, for example, collapse of your lungs, etc. Now, it works really well, but it only works for sweating of the palms or your head and neck. It won't really work for armpits or other parts of your body. So you need to choose your patients correctly. Secondly, there is an issue of compensatory hyperhidrosis. And what that means is that you may find that your palms are really well controlled. So after surgery, you wake up, your palms are amazing. They're they're clear, never been like that. But you might start sweating from your groin excessively. 
And that can also be a problem. I've had people who've come into clinic who sit down and their underwear and their trousers are completely drenched and they leave marks on the chairs, which is often more embarrassing than the original problem. So the compensatory hyperhidrosis can be a big issue. And depending on the literature, the percentages vary. So some literature will suggest that there's a 2% risk and some literature will suggest there's 40 to 60% risk. And it depends on whose literature you're reading. So if you read a surgical sort of literature or a dermatology literature, you find different percentages. And I guess you can guess where the percentages lie in terms of whose literature you read. So, but compensating hyperhidrosis is definitely an issue. And you really need to think long and hard before you go through these surgery because they're often not reversible. And you may be left with significant sweating in other areas. I mean, if you've got somebody, for example, who is in the field where they have to shake hands, which currently in the COVID-19 crisis isn't a big issue, but if you've got someone who has to shake hands or has to use a pen or maybe a chef who's chopping things and can't hold a knife or a, or a musician who can't play his or her instruments, then maybe having sweat in your groin is more acceptable than having sweat on your hands. So it may work for specific types of patients, but not for everybody. So those are all the different types of treatment options that can be used. There is also a newer treatment that is only available in the private sector, which is a microwave treatment, whereby you essentially fry the sweat glands by blasting them with microwave radiation and you shrivel them up and destroy them. And that seems to work reasonably well as well, but it's only available privately. It's quite expensive. You'll need to be locally anesthetized in the area before it can be used. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, it sounds like there is a, a sort of wide range of treatments, but some of them are really quite intense and they certainly bear thinking carefully about before undertaking them. But I suppose that sort of illustrates to some extent what a big impact it has on people's lives. Just going back to Daniel's article, he mentioned um, that he has hyperhidrosis all over compared to, say, somebody that, that might have very localised in the, in the palms uh, or, or the feet presumably that comes with its own treatment challenges because there seems to be quite a few effective treatments for local areas you know whether that be injecting your armpits or iontophoresis for your hands or feet does it require sort of using a variety of treatments when somebody has the generalized hyperhidrosis or is it something where as a dermatologist you have to sort of manage their expectations a little bit yeah, so, I mean, I, I had to look at that article and it's really unfortunate listening to his story. And that's unfortunately not an uncommon thing. When we see patients with hyperhidrosis, it has a significant impact on their life. And if you've got more generalized hyperhidrosis where pretty much all parts of your body are affected, then you would almost definitely need some form of tablet to control it. And as I mentioned, the anticholinergic, something like glycopyronium bromide or glycopyronate works re reasonably well for that type of condition although it has its side effects it does work well but you can often combine that so you can for example you could have botox for specific areas along with the oral treatment or you could have the antiperspirants along with the oral treatments so yes you would need to sort of mix and match the various treatments in order to achieve the best results but i mean that case highlights 
how much of an issue hyperhidrosis can be for patients. And if you look online, you'll find so many different aspects where it affects people's lives, their jobs. I mean, there are young people, for example, teenagers who have had to change career paths because of their sweating. They may have wanted to be one thing, but because of their sweating, they couldn't. There are people who wanted to join the army and they can't because they've got this particular condition where they may not be able to hold weapons, for example. So it has a big impact on people's lives and not just their lives, but people around them. Yeah, of course. I mean, I hadn't even considered the occupational issues. I mean, I think, you know, if you're not somebody that has dealt with excessive sweating, it's hard to necessarily picture what that's like and what kind of impact that has on your day-to-day life. So I think, you know, hearing stories like Daniel's are really important to just help spread a bit of empathy and understanding and try and help reduce that stigma. Absolutely. And I've had um, patients who have come into clinic because of generalized hyperhidrosis. And when they go to office or work, they take three different pairs of shirts with them. And throughout the day, they've got to go and change them. They'll take two or three different pairs of socks with them. And they'll have to go to the bathroom, change their clothes throughout the day on multiple occasions. And it's not easy. It's really difficult. And and sometimes we don't take these things into account and of how much of an impact this has on patients' lives. And in terms of the psychological aspect, how does that work in terms of it being a trigger? Is there any known link between what's happening to you psychologically to then triggering hyperhidrosis? Or is it does it not work that way around? No, I think you're right. I think anxiety will play a role. So people, unfortunately, who have hyperhidrosis are already anxious because they're worried about shaking hands. They're worried about lifting their arms up because of sweat patches. They're worried about touching things. So they're already anxious and the anxiety can further drive excessive sweating. So it's almost a vicious cycle. So you've got to address all of it together. So you've got to address the anxiety issues and you've got to address the sweating. So you're right. A lot of the times, anxiety can make the sweating a lot worse, but it's sometimes the sweating that's driving the anxiety. So we do see a lot of people with um, hyperhidrosis with lots of sort of negative emotions, sadness, anger, sort of hopelessness. They have all these type of feelings, um, depression associated with it. So it's unfortunately a vicious, vicious cycle and it can be tricky. It can be tricky to treat. Yeah, I think that's really important to acknowledge. I mean, Daniel in his article talks about the impact that his hyperhidrosis has on his comfort when working out, when in the gym. You know, a stressful enough place as it is for most people, that it's easy to feel like you're being judged, even though often people are just busy getting on with their own workout. But I can see how having hyperhidrosis would really add to that, any pre-existing stress and, and the fact that people may be looking at you. And I do think by no means, it's certainly not everybody, but some people can be quite cruel with something like sweating because it's not as obviously a medical issue in some people's heads. I think they perhaps don't really understand quite how big an impact these comments and looks and, and so on can have. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. And, and I think, as I said earlier, when you see somebody sweating excessively, then you do make prejudgments about them. I think also, when you mentioned earlier that if people are carrying more weight, that that tends to make you sweat more anyway, yeah. that must make it so much harder to then want to exercise because if you feel like you're being judged for sweating it must be a bit of a vicious cycle I know that would then put you off potentially going to the gym because you're going to think well I don't want to sweat loads and people I'm going to think I'm the overweight person who's sweating too much so then you're not going to lose weight which again I guess would then exacerbate your sweating so it must be really really tough in those situations 
It, it is. You're absolutely right. It's, it's really difficult. You remember, people who have hyperhidrosis will break out in a sweat just by doing normal day-to-day routine things. Vacuuming, for example, they just break out in a sweat. So if you're asking them to go to the gym in front of a lot of other people, that can be really tricky, challenging, and it may well be very sort of socially embarrassing for them whereby they're producing lots of sweat and leaving marks on various equipment, etc. So obviously, you know, people can prepare in advance and they can bring towels and they can have all the little tips and tricks that they do to help manage it. But aside from that, do you think that for some people where they have anxiety, where they find that they're sweating is impacting on the quality of life and their day-to-day life and doing the things that they enjoy doing or want to do? Is there a case there that, you know, they should maybe look at psychological interventions, say CBT or or things like that? Do you think that that has a role to play potentially? Yeah, I I think definitely it does have a, a role to play. I think, of course, the important thing is that we try to control the sweating by giving them the best treatment. But yes, that definitely involves talking therapies and therapies like CBT. And a lot of trusts do have specialist psychotherapists who are there for patients with dermatological conditions, psoriasis, eczema, sweating. And a lot of these therapies will help you allay your anxieties and give you coping mechanisms essentially for stressful situations, which may well help you reduce the amount of sweating. Right. Okay. Well, that's really good to mention to people, something to consider, I suppose. I think it sounds like it's something that you need to attack from all angles, really, and get the best treatments, get comfortable in your own skin and keep doing the the things you enjoy. But obviously, the number one thing is that treatment side of things. I think the other thing to mention to people is that I think it's true of most skin conditions. But talking with people that have gone through the same thing, you know, can be really helpful. And I know there's lots of groups on social media to help with things like hypohidrosis and other skin conditions. And so, you know, talking with other people and sharing experiences can be really helpful and a good way to get encouragement. Um, So, you know, it's certainly something to consider. Well, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for for today. But thank you so much for coming on and talking us all about sweat and sweating and hyperhidrosis. Thank you so much for joining us. I think it's really interesting to learn not just about physical signs of skin diseases, but also the psychological impact, which is, you know, always topical across all skin diseases. So yeah, thank you for covering that for us. Um, thank you so much, Nina Matz, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I think as I said, there's lots of groups online where people can go to and get help and support. And of course, as dermatologists, we're always here to provide the best possible treatment for our patients. So that was our guest, Dr. Adil Shiraz. Hopefully you found that really illuminating. You learned a lot today. Um, I know that I did. I, I think there was there's lots in there. I mean, I was slightly shocked at how extreme some of the treatments are for, for hypohidrosis. The surgery in particular, I mean, you've got to be at your wit's end, I think, to, to consider such an extreme fix. And the idea that you might have that that surgery done and then your body compensates by sweating even more elsewhere just I can't imagine what a nightmare that would be Mm -hmm. I think what was also interesting though you mentioned the extreme uh, treatments but actually there's some good tips in there for less extreme versions that you might not think about I mentioned earlier about um, a child with hyperhidrosis on the palms of the hands and it would never have occurred to me Um, to mention to the mum of that child that actually you could use something like an antiperspirant on the hands for times when they need to make sure that their hands aren't sweating, be it if they've got an exam or whatever it might be. You know, that would never have occurred to me. I just assumed that if you had something 
on your hands or feet. You just had to live with it, really. The other thing we talked a lot about, and I think, you know, Daniel's article really also brought this home in a big way, is just the the psychological impact, the, the mental anguish that can go along with constantly feeling let down by your body, that you're constantly sweaty, that you have anxiety about people seeing sweat patches, about having sweaty palms, handshakes, you know, even just holding a pen. I mean, it's not something that you necessarily think about a great deal if you're if you're the type of person that doesn't sweat too much, but it does seem like it could have a real a really big impact on the quality of your life, particularly if you're an anxious person. So I think that was really good to highlight and just talk about a little bit. And Yeah, I've definitely got a new level of understanding, I think, from that interview, for sure. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today, unfortunately. We'll be back again in two weeks' time, which will be our penultimate episode of the series. So please tune in for that. Mm-hmm.